Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're in the book of Exodus, chapter 34. The second book of the Bible, Exodus, in chapter 34. Now, before we get to Exodus 34, uh, let's ease into the narrative and remind ourselves of some of what has come before, especially since it's been a couple of weeks since we were in Exodus together. Remember that Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days, receiving the law, receiving instructions for the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And after that 40 days on the mountain, Moses descended the mountain to the people with the tablets of stone in his hands. Chapter 31, verse 18 says, the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And then someone bumps the record player at the party and it goes south. It's jarring to read on what was taking place at the same time that Moses descended from the mountain. There's irony and there's a sense of horror about it, especially in this juxtaposition that on the one hand, the gracious God who had delivered and declared and intended to dwell with his people, this God who literally just put in stone that he alone is God and alone is to be worshiped, then there's this other side, the people. The people, they've turned from that God, from their God, their deliverer. And they've turned to worship a man-made golden figure in the shape of a cow. And so it's telling that God calls these people stiff-necked. Chapter 32, verse 9 And that may just mean that they're stubborn, like a stubborn cow or cattle that won't go the way that its owner is directing. But according to G.K. Beale, New Testament professor at Westminster Seminary, he says there's more to it. He believes that God called these people stiff-necked because it was a symbolic way of describing this principle, you become what you behold. You become what you behold. That's a principle found throughout Scripture. We sang of it this morning in a song based on Psalm 115. Drew read from Psalm 135 that uses the same language. Idols, they have mouths but can't speak, hands but can't touch. They have feet but they can't walk. And everyone who makes them will become like them. We become what we behold either for our good or for our bad. And we'll see that in our passage later on, because God is good. When we behold him, we become like him. But when we behold idols, we become like them, stupid and stiff-necked and stubborn. One other comment by way of background before we get to our chapter. It's that, it's that response that we see in Moses in chapter 32. That immediate response to seeing the idol and the dancing around the idol, it's so significant. Do you remember what Moses did? He threw down the tablets of stone. Verse 19 of chapter 32. His anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them. Now surely this was righteous indignation. This isn't a hot temper. We can surmise that because God doesn't rebuke Moses here. And later in Numbers, when Moses does lose his temper, God rebukes him and there are consequences. Now, this is the righteous indignation of the prophet of God who's doing a very prophet-like thing, even a symbolic thing. The smashing of the commandments represented what the people had done. They had smashed what God had said to do and to not do. The broken pieces of the tablets signified the broken covenant. The people had broken covenant with their God. So what then? What's next? Where do you go from here? What will become of the broken covenant and the broken relationship? Well, that's why the rest of Exodus 32 and much of chapter 33 has an air of uncertainty about it. 
Will God begin afresh, starting over with just one man to make this great nation? Or will he take these people, send them into the promised land with all of its blessings, but not go with them? In light of that uncertainty, in light of those possibilities, Moses pleads with God, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in Exodus 33. He states his case for God's ongoing kindness and presence with these people despite their sin. And he boldly asks God for a sign. He wants to see God's glory that he would know God is with them and will dwell with them. And amazingly, God says yes. Chapter 33, verse 17, I will do all that you've asked. Of course, God lays out some limitations on this glory that Moses will get. But nevertheless, he makes a plan for Moses apprehending and experiencing more of God than he has ever experienced before, more than anyone has ever experienced since the garden. Chapter 33 ends with that promise and that plan of an experience with God. So now we come to chapter 34. Now I'll read the majority of chapter 34, only skipping some verses in the middle for the sake of time. So follow along with me. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze, graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance." And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. And now we can skip to verse 27, since verses 18 to 26 simply review various feasts and memorials that we should be pretty familiar with by now if we've been in Exodus together. So verse 27, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. 
When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. Well, as I said, last time we were in Exodus, we got into chapter 34 in that encounter that is promised at the end of chapter 33. The encounter is verses 5 through 9 of our chapter. And we'll come back to that again this week because we want to see it in context and in the flow and development of this chapter. But first, we need to see a new set of tablets. That's number one. A new set of tablets is what we find in verses 1 through 4. Remember, God has already agreed to Moses' requests back in chapter 33. But now here, it's as if he says, but first, let's reestablish those commandments. Those commandments. It's not Moses' fault that the tablets have been smashed. The people broke the covenant. There's no way back. But there is a way forward. And yet that way forward will not be a commandment-less relationship. Not a laissez-faire, who cares what you do kind of relationship with God. No, they will be his people still. And being his people means forgiveness, yes, but it also means restoration. It means transformation. It means conformity to his will and distinctness from those around them. So God, in essence, repeats the whole previous Mount Sinai experience all over again. That 40-day experience that stretched lots of chapters in Exodus before the golden calf debacle, it all happens again. It's as if God says, we were almost there, guys. We were so close. So let's go back and do this again. But, but not from where we left off. Go back to the beginning. Everyone, first position. Moses, top of the mountain. People, don't touch the mountain. God comes down, smoke and fire. And he'll repeat the law, and he'll give a new set of tablets. All of this, just like before, except for this part, the encounter with God. Secondly, there's an unparalleled encounter, verses 5 through 9. These verses fulfill what Moses asked for in the previous chapter. Please show me your ways that I may know you. Show me your glory. And God is going to show Moses something of his glory. Of course, like we said, there are qualifications and there are limitations necessary because God's glory is so obliterating for fallen human beings, even the Moses kind. But he does experience something of God's presence and glory unlike he had ever, ever before. And this was a sign. It was a sign. It wasn't just an experience. It wasn't just to satiate Moses' curiosity. Moses was not playing the role of the little kid at a birthday party who asked the magician to do something impressive. If we keep the whole of these chapters in mind, we'll keep in mind this experience comes with the great rebellion of the golden calf in the background, in the smashing of the tablets on the ground, the uncertainty about what will come of this, the back and forth between Moses and God about what 
the plan forward would be. Moses pleading with God to stick with the people. It's in that context that Moses asked God for glory, for a sign, to see something, to show him his ways. It's in that context that God provides this unparalleled encounter. It's a sign. Now, We've already spent some time talking about this section of Exodus 34 again a couple weeks ago, but I want to come back to it this week so we can see the sweep and the flow of the whole chapter, but, but also to tie up any loose ends that didn't get covered a couple weeks ago. So here's a loose end. Let me point out this relationship between what is seen and what is spoken in verses 5 through 9. You see, back in chapter 33, Moses said, show me your glory. And God responded, I will show you my goodness and I will proclaim my name. Well, that's what happened in chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed And from there, we have about a dozen descriptions of God's character in his ways, in his attributes. We said a couple of weeks ago, it's like it's God's full name, his long name. He goes by Yahweh, which encapsulates all this. What it means is that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, yet just. Moses asked to see something of God's glory. And he did see something. God said, you can't see my face, but you will see my back. And we take that to mean something like the trailing end of the backside of the glory of God, like the end of a comet in its trail. But in the actual event, in the actual experience of chapter 34, The emphasis is placed not on what Moses saw, but what God spoke. This is how God most often reveals himself. Words. At times, God shows his power in things like the ten plagues or the parting of the Red Sea. At times, God reveals his presence among his people in something visible like a cloud or fire, a burning bush. But more often, God reveals his presence and his will for us and his character in ways, in words. So for all of us who would like to trust God if he would only give us a sign, if he would only show us something big, if he'd only confirm before our very eyes or in our ears that he's there and he cares and he's at work, we'll know this, that he has given a book, a book that is chock full of signs and words and promises and assurances. For those of us who would long for an experience with God, and experience, just to know he's there, to feel that he's in the room. He's given you a word. Take the word. Another matter that I want to give attention to this week with this self-disclosure of God in verses 5 to 9 is toward the end of it. You see, after a half dozen descriptions of God's what we might call softer attributes, or the ones we like more. Mercy, kindness, patience, love, all those things. After a half dozen of those, there seems to be some others that go in an opposite direction. So halfway through verse 7, but he will by no means clear the guilty. He doesn't clear the guilty? He doesn't acquit the guilty? No, because his mercy is relational. So if you're not interested in him, then there is no mercy. Those who refuse him, refuse his mercy, and they get what they want. Those who don't see their need for mercy, don't get it. But those who do see their need for mercy and get it, 
They know they got it ultimately, especially this side of the cross. They got it on account of Christ. God is the just and the justifier. He's not just the forgiver. He's just even in his forgiveness. So God accomplishes his steadfast love and mercy not by acquitting the guilty or at least the one who stands in the place of the guilty, Christ upon the cross. But it's what it says next that's even more difficult. The third part of verse 7 says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That sounds an awful lot like generational curses. That I'm punished for the sins of my father and grandfather. It sounds like it, but it's not. Ezekiel 18 is a passage where God clears up this frequent misunderstanding about how sin and judgment works generation to generation. Go there and read it later on your own, especially if you have some concerns about generational sins and generational curses. What you'll see there is that God judges each generation on its own, and God judges each individual on its own, on his own or her own. Now, often, godlessness can span generations. But as that happens, what a passage like ours communicates to us is that God will always be true to his word to each generation, to each individual. He will be true to his word to judge each sinful generation and individual. We shouldn't presume that God tires of executing justice or he gets bored or he gets used to sin. And yes, family trees can often display patterns and groupings of sin and trouble. But... It's not an indication that God has locked any of us into that and we can't get out. So for any of us, and for all of us sinners, no matter what we've done, no matter what our fathers and mothers have done or even done to us, we should do what Moses did in response to hearing God's astounding grace and his just judgment It's verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. This is what we all must do. This is the only thing we can do. Third, there's a renewed covenant. A renewed covenant. Verse 10, God said, behold, I'm making a covenant. This isn't a new covenant. This is a covenant redo. He's renewing. He's reinstituting what we call the Mosaic Covenant, which by nature, the Mosaic Covenant was breakable. It was conditional. It was two-party. Now, spoiler alert, Israel will keep breaking this covenant throughout the whole Old Testament. They'll just keep breaking it which tells us that we need a better covenant than this covenant. And we'll see that in just a bit this morning. But the point at this moment in time, in the experience of those in the story of Exodus 34, is that God is being gracious here. Even though they will break the covenant again and again and again, God renews the covenant here. God doesn't give up on his people. They sin, he keeps the covenant. And so the covenant is renewed The parameters are repeated, and we need not go into the details. As typical covenants and treaties, treatises, is that the right word? Treaties, as they go in ancient Near East, this has all the similar features. Promises are stated, that's what we find in verse 10. God will do marvelous things, unthinkable things with these people. Warnings are laid down, verses 12 to 17 especially those related to idolatry, particularly important with the golden calf not far in the rearview mirror. So don't play around with the idols of outsiders when you get to the land. Don't marry the gals of outsiders because you marry into their gods and their religion and it'll lead you astray. 
The expectations are spelled out, verses 18 and following, particularly related to the feasts. So the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Sabbath, these sorts of things, the consecration of the firstborn, all these were mechanisms God put in place for Israel to remember the past, to remember God's provision, to remember God's deliverance, to trust him. But none of it's new. All that has already been established. That's the point. It's just that now it's official. And so with that, Moses takes two tablets of stone and goes down the mountain. Verse 29, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And get this, with this journey down, there's going to be a surprise when he gets there this time as well. The first time down with the two tablets under his arms, he was horrified to see the people engaging in idolatry like they were. And the second time down the mountain with the tablets in his arms, there's another surprise, but this one is a good one. So now fourth, a transformed appearance. A transformed appearance. Verses 29 to 35 describe this encounter between Moses and all the people. He doesn't know his face is aglow from the presence of God, but they see it and they're frightened. Moses assures them, this is all good, this is fine. He speaks to them what God has said. And then there's this crazy thing with the veil. It goes up, it goes down. But that's not actually the first mystery here. Let me, let me point out to you two mysteries before we get to the full meaning of this scene. There's the mystery of the shine. Why is it a mystery? Well, for starters, because there's some debate about how best to translate this Hebrew word that's behind in the ESV where it says, shone. The, the word is karen, and usually it's translated Horn. In fact, the Latin Vulgate and Jerome's translation both have Moses was horned. This is why Michelangelo, in his statue of Moses, he depicts him with horns. Now, almost certainly, Moses did not have horns, though that would be scary as well and worthy of veiling up over those horns. But, but, but Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 sure doesn't think that they're horns. And so it probably means that these were like beams of light, horn-like beams. His face is emanating with beams of light from the glory of God. But still, why? Why? Why the transformed appearance? Well, there's the simple fact that he had just experienced the intimate glory of God. And apparently an experience with God's glory leaves an imprint of God's glory on those who experience it. Remember, we become like what we behold. You behold a stupid idol calf and you'll become stiff-necked and stupid. And you behold the glorious living God and some of his glory actually falls upon you. There's also the fact here that Moses' glowing face signals for the people God's credentials or God's validation of Moses. Now, Moses doesn't need that validation, but the people might. It wasn't long. In fact, it was chapter 32. This is what eventually led to the golden calf. It was their doubt in Moses. They said to Aaron, we don't know what's become of this Moses. Well, folks, this Moses is now, right before you, glowing from the presence of God. He represents God. You don't need to doubt. What he says is from God. It's staring you right in the face. And then there's the mystery of the veil. What's going on with this veil? I think a careful reading of the text indicates that Moses took down the veil when he met with God. He met with God without a veil. That's amazing. And then he came out of this meeting with God and he spoke to the people still without 
a veil so they could see his shining face. But then he put the veil back up until he went to meet with God again. Why? Why all this up and down? Even just what's the purpose of the veil? Some people say it was for the people's fear. They, they feared his glow, and so he veiled this so they wouldn't fear. Well, yeah, but he spoke with them without the veil, so I don't think it's that. Others would say, well, he was shielding them from the glorious presence of God like the veil of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle would be later on. I don't think it's that because he speaks to them without the veil. Our passage just doesn't actually tell us what the veil is for and why the up and down. And so we're wise to lean on the Apostle Paul who writes about this under divine inspiration. This is all we need. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13. Moses would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Or as the New American Standard puts it, it was fading away. Apparently, the veil veiled the fading shine of Moses' face. The shine wasn't permanent. It wasn't a one-and-done kind of experience. It would fade. He would go in and meet with God. He would be lit up. He'd come out and speak, start to fade. He'd cover up so that they didn't see it fade. So two mysteries, the veil and the shine, and now we're ready for the even deeper meaning of this. The meaning found in Christ and a new covenant. I read just one verse from 2 Corinthians 3, but Paul deals with Exodus 34 at length in 2 Corinthians 3. For over a dozen verses, he's interacting with our very passage. So turn there with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 3. So you can see it for yourself in your own Bible. And know that uh, we're going to be here a while. Your outline is done, but we're not done. So hold on. Be patient with me. Now in this section of 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is interacting with the Corinthians' doubt about Paul's ministry. These so-called super apostles had come to town and said, Who's this Apostle Paul? I don't think he's really Apostle at all, but he's surely not that big of a deal. And the Corinthians were starting to buy it. So what does Paul do? Uh, he says, I want to defend myself here for your sake, but I don't need letters of recommendation. He says in verse 4, our confidence, Paul and his men, our confidence is through Christ. Verse 5, our sufficiency is from God. Verse 6, he has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And then in verses 7 to 11, if you look down, Paul sets up three different if-then arguments. If this, then that which are also arguments from the lesser to the greater. If this thing was this much, then this thing's even more. So, so look for them as I read these verses. Look for the ifs, and I'll supply some thens for us. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, that's the whole Mosaic package, that's the old covenant, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Here's the then. Then will not the ministry of the Spirit, that's the whole new covenant, that's the whole thing of Christ onward, won't that have, have even more glory? Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the old, then the ministry of righteousness in Christ must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, then much more will what is permanent have glory. 
So yes, the old covenant had glory to it. Just check out Moses' face. But it wasn't a lasting glory. And the new, all that comes in Christ and the Spirit, that is permanent and it is surpassing glory, far greater glory. And then as Paul moves on in verse 8 and following, sorry, verse, where am I now? Verse 12, we'll say. In verse 12 and following, Paul will now tap into this matter of the veil that we find in Exodus 34. Again, he's contrasting Moses' glory with Christ's glory. Contrasting the kind and degree of glory that one could experience in the old with the kind and degree of glory that any and all can experience in the new. So here's how it goes. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul takes that Old Testament picture of the veil and he uses it as kind of a spiritual metaphor. He's saying, much like the Israelites of olden days couldn't see the glory of Moses' face when the veil was up. Fading glory, yes, but still glory. They couldn't see it when the veil was up. So now in Paul's day, Jews who read the Old Testament scriptures regularly, it's like they had a veil over their spiritual eyes and they couldn't see glory. They couldn't see The anticipation of the Christ in the Old Testament scriptures, they couldn't make sense of it. And of course, it's not just Jews in Paul's day, it's all of us by nature. We're born blind, we don't see spiritually speaking. Look over at chapter 4, where Paul's still talking in similar ways, like verse 3 if our gospel is veiled, they can't see it. It's veiled to those who are perishing, those who aren't yet saved. Verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So here's a theological explanation for why many of us had heard the gospel and were around the gospel for a long time before we got the gospel and embraced the gospel and believed the gospel. We were blind. Didn't matter that you were around it. Didn't matter that you heard it. Here's the explanation for what's happening when we talk to a non-Christian about Jesus. And we're putting it in such simple terms. Perhaps not perfect terms, but clear enough. And it's like, There are birds flying around their head and they think we're saying X and instead we're saying Y. We can't imagine what's happening here except that we're all born blind and Satan blinds. But the good news is found back in chapter 3, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Or in the language of 2 Corinthians 4, now look at verse 6. For God who said in creation, light shine out of darkness. That same God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what we call conversion. This is what it means to become a Christian. And you can view it from your own point of view. That'd be chapter 3, verse 16. Turn to the Lord. Turn to him. Look to him. And you can also see it from God's side of things. 
That'd be 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. It's like God has to speak light into existence where it is not for us to see Christ. Both are true. So becoming a Christian, first and foremost then, is seeing Christ. Not literally, in the flesh, but apprehending him, getting him aright, and liking it, even loving it. There is no Christianity without this experience, even if you don't know when it happened in your life. That's okay. But it did happen if you're a Christian. Liking Jesus, kind of? Following some of his ideas? That's not the light we're talking about here. That's, that's just familiarity with Jesus in a dark heart. You need God to literally turn on the light for you to see Christ as he is and to see him as glorious. Look at the cross. What do you see? Uh, a guy who taught us to turn the other cheek when people are mean to us. The light's not on, friend. That's not it. If you see, well, a guy who um, thought he was going to win, but apparently lost, and his disciples made up this resurrection story so they didn't feel like losers. That's not it, friend. No matter how much good you think Jesus taught, the light has not yet dawned on your heart. So, so turn to the Lord. That's your doing. And pray that God would speak creation light into your dark heart that you would see Christ and apprehend him and cling to him. And when that happens, we're not done with him. There's this ongoing transformation as now with an unveiled view of Christ, we keep beholding him. And keep beholding him, we are transformed into the same image that is more like him. So we keep coming back to the things we've already seen. We keep coming back to the glory of the incarnation. Remember John 1:14. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We behold him as we see him in the scriptures. We behold the glory of his ministry and his compassion on people as we read through the Gospels. We, we behold him in his power over demons and the curse and his authority to forgive sin. We behold him in the glory of his transfiguration. That awesome moment when he took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. That's important. And then Matthew 17 he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Uh, we're supposed to think of Moses in Exodus at a moment like that, and we're supposed to realize that this is a better than Moses moment. Remember, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, he was there with Moses and Elijah talking. And Peter thinks he has the great idea. Lord, how about I'll make three tents to sort of prolong this special moment. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And that's when the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Moses had his glory. But it is nothing compared to the glory of God's son. We know this from the scriptures. This is no small point. We don't behold Jesus by gazing at our favorite portrait of his face. We don't behold Jesus by staring at him hanging on the crucifix if you have one in your house. We, we don't experience Jesus by flying to Israel in walking in his steps or seeing some pieces of wood that may have come from the cross. No, we behold him in the scriptures. Where do we go to see the birth, the incarnation, the life, the care, the love? Where do we go to see his power in the resurrection and the ascension? We go to the scriptures. 
And 2 Peter 1 goes so far as to say that's actually a more reliable guide than if you were there. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, oh, I was there. I was at the transfiguration. We saw it. We heard the voice from heaven. We're not giving you fables and made-up stories. We were there. We saw it with our own eyes. But we have a more sure word in the scriptures, he says. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until that day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. This is the experience of Scripture and the confidence we can have with God's Word. This is how we grow. This is how Christians are changed. This is how we get to be more like Jesus. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So it's sometimes slow going. From one degree of glory to another. But it is progressive. This is how we grow. This is the plan. We become what we behold. Most of us know that from a very young age. You become friends with someone who you thought was impressive. You still do. You start to imitate them. I grew up with a, a friend, Ryan Miller. So he's the other Ryan. I was little Ryan. He was big Ryan. Uh, he was 6'4 in sixth grade. He was the first among all of our friends to dunk a basketball. Uh, played linebacker for Ohio State was in the Rose Bowl. That's how cool he is, right? And I thought he was cool back in middle school and high school, and I used to do things, even subconsciously, I'd, I would pick up something he would do, like he'd always wipe his mouth with his T-shirt, and so I started doing that. My mom had to say to me, what's going on with all your T-shirts? They got this yellow stain right here. I don't know. Well, I did know. I was doing what Ryan did. So we become what we behold, whether it's following... Uh, Cool friends, or idols, or the Lord. What are you beholding? Do some work on this. If we behold money, we get more greedy, more stingy. If we behold power, I don't mean if we hold power or if we hold money. I mean if we behold it. If we behold power, you head towards manipulation and, and harshness. If you long for people's approval, you'll become more, more self-focused and unfulfilled. And you will fold in on yourself. If you behold blank, you will become blank. I'd encourage you in your community group or perhaps at the lunch table today to sort of play with that and be vulnerable. Think through some things in your life that you know, yeah, that's true. When I become, when I behold X, I see more of Y. Are you beholding Christ in the pages of Scripture? Friend, the veil has been removed for you if you're a Christian. Now, not all of us see the same amount in the Bible as others. That's true for someone like me who happens to, you know, have it as my job to have theological training and to study the Bible weekly. There are others who come at it better than I do and see it more quickly than than I can, but all of us, categorically, every Christian, all is the word Paul uses. The veil's been removed. We behold Christ. We see more of the glory of God in Christ than Moses ever could in a tent in the wilderness. So are you striving for a routine, regular diet with the word of God? 
Maybe if you weren't with us a while back when we went through Psalm 119 very patiently, the long psalm about the Bible, that might be worth your time. Are you going to the scriptures with expectancy and anticipation to see Christ? And when that expectancy and anticipation isn't there, are you praying from Psalm 119, oh Lord, Open my eyes to see wondrous things in your word. Do you want to be more like Christ? Keep looking at him. Keep looking at him. One day we will see him and we will be made like him. 1 John 3, 2 says, When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's coming. One day we will not need the Bible because the word in the flesh will be right before us. But you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. We need the Bible. It's where we see, at least for now, it's where we see his glory and are changed. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your marvelous word, for your glorious plan to reveal more of yourself. We boldly pray, show us more glory, Lord. And we do not pray that expecting you to do some some explosions in the sky for us to merely enjoy or be impressed by. We know praying for more of your glory means turning to you and continuing to turn to you and turn to your word. So help us, we pray. Help us even now as we behold you in song. May we do it in faith and with great joy for our good, for your glory. Amen.